0: What would you like the power to do?
1: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDIC.
0: Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
1: A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh?
0: Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over a 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No over 18 plus terms and conditions apply. website for details.
1: You're listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as usual by the great Dan Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. How's it going, Dan?
0: One foot in front of the other, Leslie. One foot in front of the other. How about you?
1: Same, my friend. It's, you know, been been a rather challenging week in the news. Um, yeah, there's really no way to, to word it that any way other than it's just horrific, you know, following what's, ha- what's you know, the events coming out of Texas. And
0: yeah, yep, that has definitely been a a central thing for everyone, and so you know we, we will we we will continue on with the uh, with the podcast as we do and uh, and yeah know that know that our minds are elsewhere are, are elsewhere and that is just unfortunately how it goes all too frequently I'm afraid.
1: Yes, well, this is a good distraction for us, and I would imagine for our listeners, too. So let's get started. Um, this is episode 171. Thank you to those who have stuck with us for the past 170 episodes. Um, not a whole lot of big headlines this week, as we have reached the post-Upfront's lull part of the TV calendar, as we head into the Memorial Day holiday weekend. So we can dive right into headlines. There's not a lot of them, but there's definitely a lot to talk about, so... Leading off this week,
0: number one,
1: the biggest headline actually came as part of a Friday news dump last week as the news came out of Saturday Night Live's season finale. The venerable Lauren Michaels sketch show said farewell to four cast members, Pete Davidson, Kate McKinnon, A.D. Bryant and Kyle Mooney. Dan, I know you did a great critics notebook after having watched the season finale, which in which the four said goodbye to the show. But what did you think, you know, in a larger sense, this is a big, it's a sea change for SNL.
0: It is. It's also a sea change that we've talked about on the podcast multiple times, sort of the idea that the show revised its way of looking at what being a core SNL cast member was in the past two or three years. And it did so to match the changes in the industry at large. And so... Ten years ago, you never would have had Lorne Michaels saying, sure, AD Bryant, go off and make... Three seasons of Shrill, sure, so, which Cecily, was
1: executive produced by Lauren Michaels, exactly.
0: Uh, sure, sesley Strong, uh, make Schmigadoon, which
1: also executive produced by Lauren Michaels.
0: I, I believe. I believe any one of the things that we're going to say, well, with the possible exception, I guess, of Joe versus Carol. I don't think that, that was Lorne, not executive produced. I, by Lorne I Michaels. don't believe Lauren Michaels <laughs> got his name on that one, and probably he's relieved. But no, uh, yes,
1: but but sort of as. And Pete res- Davidson has Bupkis coming up for Peacock, which again. Executive produced by Lauren Michaels. Keenan Thompson starred in what two seasons of of Keenan for NBC, also executive produced by Lauren Michaels. Of course that one was just canceled, but
0: so it's obviously it's not a wholly altruistic thing that Lauren Michaels has allowed these people to go off and do their other things. It's all about kind of empire expansion. But one of the things I, I was doing over the weekend was kind of going back and glancing at what the size of the cast has been over the years and how that's evolved. And you go back to those first couple seasons where the ensemble really was, it was seven people and that was it. And then it became seven or eight people. Then they introduced the idea of the featured players and even still. You would have only seasons with, say, nine or 11 regular cast members and then however many recurring featured players, so three or four. Well, this group, it was 16 regular cast members and five featured players. It was too large of a cast, and people really were getting lost, and I don't think there's any harm whatsoever in saying, maybe next year, let's have two or three fewer people and see how that goes. Obviously, these are four performers who will all be missed to varying degrees because they all had had very long tenures on the show. And obviously, Kate McKinnon, you know, she won an Emmy for for her acting on the show. First person to have such an achievement in decades. So obviously, she's kind of the, the featured person who... Who people will be missing. And, you know, as I said in my piece that I wrote for THR, I I don't think she'll be as missed as she would have been, say, five years ago, um, when the show needed her in certain respects. Now, maybe a little bit less so, but still, she'll be hugely missed. I think A.D. Bryant will be hugely missed as well. I think that. Pete Davidson sort of got the headlines, and that's because Pete Davidson is the Davidson is the the page six tabloid favorite, you know. Which which attractive female guest host will he date next? Uh, ooh, 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 whatever. And it, realistically, in an actual practical level, I really don't think the show is going to miss him. He was never the most active sketch participant. Most of his material was either filmed bits or kind of monolog type things. So he wasn't like a a group participant in the way that a McKinnon or an A.D. Bryant were, or even Kyle Mooney, honestly. So, yeah, I think I think it is a a sea change for the show, but one that is entirely necessary. I think that the show... This may not have been the best cast in SNL history, I you know, and I don't think it probably was, but I do think it was the deepest cast in SNL history. I think that they have people capable of filling basically any absent capacity, and maybe they'll add another featured player to it. I, I would also guess that at least one or two more people will probably leave just with a little bit less fanfare. Anyway, uh, this is not a standalone segment, so I don't need to go any further. Yes, it's a change.
1: And this just in, Dan, Jodie Foster will star in season four of True Detective for HBO.
0: That is a that is a reasonably large piece of casting. And, uh, you know, Jodie Foster had not had not made her leap to television. So, yay, we get to someday have a press tour panel with her where we say, hey, Jodie, why TV? Why now? Um. And she gets to say it's basically just like film, just more of it. I look at True Detective Season 4 as making an eight-hour movie. Um, anyway, good for her. Uh Foster is a great actor, so yay!
1: <laughs> and that's real-time reaction from Dan. He had no idea. That that embargo just came in, so hasn't been released to the world yet. That's uh, <laughs> two hours from now, but uh, that's real-time reaction from Dan from I, Breaking News. It's kind of fun here when that happens.
0: Eh, you know, not like I had anything deep to say about it. But anyway, yes, uh, good for good for True Detective. It adds a little bit of hype to True Detective, and so...
1: Good for HBO. That's a big get.
0: Exactly. Good for HBO. Um, So continuing with headlines, um, Netflix has renewed Heartstopper, which many, many people have been enjoying in recent weeks, for two additional seasons.
1: The easiest way to tell if you have a hit show on Netflix is how big your renewal is. And elsewhere, Dan, not really headlines, but hard to ignore – Two big shows wrapped their runs this week as Ellen DeGeneres officially signed off her syndicated daytime talk show and NBC's This Is Us came to its tearful conclusion. Dan, did you watch either? I know you've been on The Better Call Saul Beat, which also ended its uh, first half of its final season, but lots going on. Lots of big, iconic things coming to their end.
0: I mean, you know, most of it is is what we've talked about over and over again about getting things in under the Emmy wire. That being sort of the presumably central reason why AMC decided to split up the halves of the Better Call Saul season in the way that they did. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about uh, Stranger Things down the road in Critics Corner, as we do. And so... You know, it's May and so things are coming to an end. This is us. Lots of tears. Um, I'm a season behind on this is us. I, I, and I, there was no circumstance under which I was going to be able to watch 15 episodes to catch up in time for the finale. So, oh well, it, you know, it is, uh, it's a significant show because it was a, it was a broadcast hit. And anytime there's a broadcast hit, there's some significance to that. And it produces the inevitable, genuinely banal, is this the last water cooler show? Is this the last broadcast four Quadrant Smash? Whatever, whatever, whatever. The answer to that question in all cases is no, it's not. Yeah. Uh, and and there will be another. It will just be a slightly different shape and a slightly different conversation topic. And yeah, no, this is. I mean,
1: we've, we saw a couple last season ghosts at CBS and Abbott Elementary.
0: Absolutely, ABC, yeah. and but but again, even those even those shows, you know, absolutely. While they broke through, there's probably a difference between breaking through and breaking out, or between breaking out and Modern Family. You know, they're, we'll they're, see
1: what the Emmys have to say about uh, about both of those shows.
0: And I think, yeah, I think, and a final might.
1: season of This Is Us, for that matter.
0: I definitely think that there will be conversations about about This Is Us for Emmy consideration. And I I saw some of our friends on on Twitter talking about. Mandy Moore and giving her TCA awards recognition and all of that, and hey, sure, maybe. Um, As for Ellen, it didn't really seem necessary to watch the end. The show had very, very little impact on my life, but I know that it had impacts on many people's lives, and so... I hope that Ellen left you for the better, which cannot be said for many of the staffers on her show. Uh. Fair, fair. And, you know,
1: and we'd be remiss not to mention Star Wars celebrations actively happening as we record this. There's already been a couple of headlines that came out of that. Jude Law starring in a new Star Wars series for Disney Plus, return dates for The Mandalorian, etc. You can stay tuned to the Heat Vision newsletter that comes out every Friday from Aaron Couch and Boris Kitt. Our, our fabulous colleagues are all over that beat. So stay tuned to Heat Vision for that on Friday with their newsletter for full details out of Star Wars Celebration.
0: And as for Better Call Saul, I thought it was a great finale to a great half a season. Uh, it's sort of tough to understand how exactly one is supposed to evaluate What better call Saul is given the sort of strange half-hearted split of the season where, yes, this was a mid-season finale, but it'll be back in a month. So really, it's just kind of like they are taking a small hiatus to do other things, except it's all in the can. Anyway, great, great half a season, shocking finale, lots of great performances by many, many people. I like Better Call Saul a lot, and uh, but you know, the, again, there's so so many. But Atlanta came to an end last week; its most recent season, uh, etc. So, coming and going, but we're moving our way towards June, which will hopefully be a little bit quieter than May. Yes,
1: and up next, it's time for our first of not one, not two, but three mailbag segments.
0: Number two.
1: Let's lead off with our mailbag. This is the first of three mailbag segments that we've got for you this week. As I mentioned, we are in the Post Upfront's lull part of the TV calendar. So this segment is going to be general questions that we've received from our fabulous listeners. And a reminder, if you have a question you would like to hear Dan and I discuss, drop us an email at TV's Top 5 that's a number five, at thr.com. Dan, let's get right into it. Listener Lynn emails and asks if abortion is disappearing on broadcast and other mainstream shows. And her question is pegged to a storyline on Young Sheldon in which the 17-year-old character Georgie gets a considerably older woman pregnant, and there is not one mention of abortion being an option on The Chuck Laurie Show.
0: Uh, I have not seen this episode of, of Young Sheldon because I am also behind on young Sheldon, behind on many things, because there's too much TV. Um, I, you know, I, I definitely think it's interesting that it wouldn't have been mentioned. And Chuck Lorre, you know, when he wants to be, his shows are extremely topical, and then sometimes they're not the least bit topical. So you never necessarily know which version of Chuck Lorre you're getting, which I think is probably part of the the fun. Are you going to get the... Uh, the mom, Chuck Laurie, where many things are topical and, and surely a similar situation on mom would have definitely generated a, a conversation along those lines. Here, I kind of wonder to some degree if there's also a, how much would the conversation really have been a thing that was happening in small town Texas in, in 1980? With the answer being, of course, there were people having abortions in small town Texas in 1980, even in the most conservative of uh, towns. So I I kind of wonder if, in retrospect, given all of the conversations that we're having about abortion now, if, you know, this was obviously shot a couple months ago, maybe now if there would be a a revision, I think that television's relationship with abortion is an ongoing conversation. And I I think that, you know, we've come a long way, obviously, since Maude, because, the fact that we have to have a conversation about Maud anytime anyone talks about abortion on television, it, it sort of is bizarre that, you know, in 2022, it's, it's sort of the same different shows that we're talking about in this conversation. And so maybe that really does say that either abortion and its depictions on television have stagnated and it's not a thing that's as visible anymore, or that it's a thing that happens but happens in a matter-of-fact way as a choice that a character makes as it happens in real life. And so it doesn't need to be stunted in the way that, you know, oh my God, Maud is having an abortion. It, and so one could argue that there's progress to that. One could also argue that given the conversations that we're having in America at this exact moment, having these conversations on television in a vocal visible way is perhaps more important than ever before and we shouldn't ever feel as if anything has been fully normalized and well again word choice abortion should be normalized but we should never forget that it's a conversation that needs to be had because the minute at which we stop having it things slip through the cracks and it becomes easier to take away or write so But we still still talk about the same shows when we talk about television and its depiction of of abortion, whether it's Scandal and Olivia Pope, whether it's Grey's Anatomy and Christina Yang you know, those are sort of those are great and extraordinarily well done abortion storylines,
1: extremely well done.
0: But there are also storylines that are a decade or over a decade old. And so we're still talking about those. Bridgerton had a had a. You know, a, a different kind of abortion storyline that was a couple years ago, not in this most recent season.
1: But again, the common thread there is a producer who is willing to wield their power and make shows that have a message that have something to say. And that's Shonda Rhimes. And those shows are always going to going to take on topical subject matter. That's that's who Shonda is.
0: And it was in no way intentional that I just sat there and listed three shows that happened consecutively to be Shonda Rhimes show at shows. And yet, very clearly, that's something that uh, that needs to be underlined. If a showrunner wants to have abortion as a topic of discussion, they still can if they're as powerful as Shonda Rhimes. And Shonda Rhimes chooses to use that power to have those conversations. Bless her for that. Uh, other people decide when they want to and when they don't want to. I, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's a broadcast TV doesn't do this anymore and I don't think it's a Chuck Lorre is afraid to do this. I think probably Chuck Lorre thought it was not the kind of thing that young Sheldon does and he thought it wasn't a thing to bring into that show. Whether that's exactly the reason why it should have been brought up is something else. So yeah, I think that was a, a long-winded answer to the question. Our next question Shannon emails that historical networks like HBO, FX, and even Comedy Central had personalities or brands where viewers knew what to expect when they tuned in. And that's not true, say for HBO, in the streaming world. Shannon asks if we're going to see distinct and compelling new brands emerge in this environment.
1: That feels like a question for me on that one. So I'll, I'll field this one. I think that any discussion about brands right now is super fascinating because, Everything is basically consolidating under their giant uh, corporate umbrellas. You know, at, at some point, I have no doubt that we'll see Disney Plus become the centerpiece of, of Disney's streaming portfolio where you'll have ESPN Plus and Hulu everything merged onto that platform and maybe it's all just a tab, like here's Hulu originals, here's FX originals, here's, you know, uh, the Disney Plus originals, here's Marvel, here's Nat Geo, and I mean, we're already seeing that happening. Um, You know, the other piece that I think is interesting that Disney, and I'm not you know, just stroking Disney here. But Onyx Collective, I think, is is we're at the beginning of seeing what that brand is. I talk about it a lot on the show because I'm very interested in what they're doing. I think it's this is the production banner that is overseen by Freeform President Tara Duncan um, that is focused on diverse voices and underrepresented communities. They've got a couple of shows already in the works with Kerry Washington attached and executive producing a couple of dramas, a couple of comedies. But. That's one specific brand that is paramount to Disney. And then I think when we're, when you think about the brands, it's like you're going to start to just think about the one company. So you, we've already kind of seen the demise of FX as those originals would just become a tab on Hulu, right? Except for the, you know, the, you know, the, the shows that predate the, the old streaming agreements where they didn't want to blow up those deals to get them to debut first on, a, on, on Hulu. And I think, you know, like, like, like I said, FX is being folded in and that brand is kind of being erased a little bit, but. It's in service to the larger company. And that's what we're seeing at Paramount, which, you know, they rebranded CBS All Access as Paramount Plus because that's supposed to be the one-stop shop for everything across that portfolio. So you're going to have tabs for Comedy Central and you'll have tabs for MTV, et cetera, and so on. And I think that's really what what we're seeing. And you look at HBO Max. Yeah, there's the DC tab. There's the HBO Library tab. You know, there's... Everything else, they've got Friends and Big Bang Theory, so they'll have the Warner Brothers tab, you know, and at some point, there'll probably be a Discovery tab. The same idea. So again, it's brands within brands. So it's, when you think of Disney, you're not not just thinking of Mickey Mouse, but you're also thinking of Marvel and Star Wars and FX and Hulu, and the same goes for all all these other companies. So it's basically using all of these sub-brands to represent the larger collective, and I think that's eventually where we're headed.
0: I, I think that also sort of maybe in lieu of a specific demographic brand, we're going to see some amount of brand definition just based on levels of curation. I think that to me more than anything is, is how streamers are setting themselves apart, that you kind of can look and go, okay, Apple TV Plus has this level of curation. Um, Okay, so that's why they had such a good spring because they have this level of curation. HBO Max has this level of curation. Netflix has no curation whatsoever.
1: But that's, at least not right now.
0: But that's also been always, and we've talked about this over and over again. The brand at Netflix is the something for everybody brand. The the if you right, do- but
1: everyone else is is doing the something for everyone. Not to interrupt you, Dan, but everyone is trying to have four quadrant programming. They want something for kids and family. They want something for the Marvel and, and, and fanboy audience. They want something for, you know, for the female viewers, et cetera. You know, and I, I think that it's, you know, to, to your point, these, all, all of these larger companies have to have their one giant brand. But I think we're still at a point where that's all still being defined. You know, and I think if you want a, a great example of that, you know, we got a, a listener question asking when, where Glee was going to stream again. Well, news broke last week that, it's going to stream on both Hulu and Disney Plus. You want a great argument for what what's the difference between those two brands? There's your there's a great example. Well, it's got want the same show on both platforms. So there is that it's it's you're illustrating the overlap that exists within one specific brand at Disney.
0: Then I think obviously we're going to see more and more of that probably the the more and Absolutely. more shows either either streaming on both or things that were streaming on hulu for a long time basically just eventually migrating their way over to disney plus yeah i mean
1: love isn't love victor gonna be on both platforms and that was again that's the love simon offshoot that they didn't think was family friendly enough to be on disney plus so they moved it to a hulu original and now it's streaming on both platforms
0: it be- it becomes the, the 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 sort of the the completely and totally artificial rules that you make up when you're starting and i you know we've we've talked about how that was a bad decision in the first place to say Ridiculous. that it didn't belong on disney plus and it was uh but just you know like okay it's one thing to say on day 1 here's what we're pretending the brand is, but then you get to year two or year three and suddenly it can't just be that one thing and so, right because your yeah. subscription
1: numbers have stalled and now you're like, well crap we need to broaden it out. So let's put Dancing with the stars on Disney plus, which does a couple of things it broadens out the demo and it brings some urgency to get live viewers to tune in on platform. Yeah,
0: but also if you're looking for brands, you just have to look to the sort of the smaller streamers you know Britbox. Britbox has a brand. Acorn has a brand. If you, if you look to certain places, hell, the Discovery Plus, as long as it's an, auto- an autonomous thing and not just another tab on HBO Max, Discovery Plus has a brand. It's sort of strange and weird and random. And I don't understand what it is a lot of the time, but so I, th- I think if you, if you look, some of these services do have brands, but there's really just no way in, in this marketplace for you to, for anyone to want to narrow down what they are.
1: Up next, friend of the five, Jason, emails, what great show or shows are most unfairly getting ignored in the tsunami of April and May premieres? Dan, this is definitely a question for you. And as we've talked about when we did our May TV preview, there's an Emmy deadline, hence why this month has been especially crowded.
0: Yeah, it's it's a lot of stuff and it's uh, a lot of stuff that I'm worried about and I guess basically, ultimately, we're going to discover what things have been ignored when actually there are award nominations. You go, come on, seriously, how did we forget about dot, dot, dot or dot, dot, dot? And a lot of it is there's just too much. And so a lot of things are getting drowned out. And so if people are talking about Atlanta and they're talking about um and they're talking about Barry and sort of those are the returning half hour shows that people are concentrating on. To my very concerned mind, that suggests that they're not talking about better things. And so that upsets me and worries me. And so I do worry about uh, frequent podcast guest Pamela Adlon and whether she's going to get any recognition or not, or whether that's going to somehow slip through the cracks. And and so that that irks me. Then there are a lot of kind of services that have a lot of stuff that simply aren't going to be able to, promote and push everything so like I do feel as if severance caught on for apple tv plus and that's great and i i think severance is a really really good show and i'm happy with that recognition and i think the pachinko caught on but maybe in a more broad and nebulous way, like, okay, we're not going to talk about the individual actors, but we'll talk about it and we'll make sure it's nominated for costumes and cinematography and stuff, but maybe not for drama series. And that, to me, would be a mistake and that would make me unhappy. Uh There are just so many adaptations of things popping up places. And so I don't think that Shining Girls on Apple TV Plus should, by any stretch of the imagination, be a drama series. Nominee, And I'm still confused why it's a series and not a limited series, but Elizabeth Moss is fantastic in it and always worthy of award recognition. I haven't seen anyone talking about that show in, in, you know, months. And so that worries me. I'm a little bit less sad, but still definitely feeling like it's slipping through the cracks about uh, Life and Beth, uh, which has, you know, Amy Schumer, Michael Sarah, almost no buzz whatsoever but that's one of those things where do i wish people were talking about it a little bit more because i think it's a good show yes but if you ask me to narrow down a a six you know category a, a six nominee shortlist in any category would i put it in a top six anywhere no i probably wouldn't so you know how so either that makes me part of the problem or whatever uh i I feel as if I need more people to be talking about The Man Who Felt Earth. Not necessarily the series, but uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor's performance. Like, if you don't nominate the series for things, whatever, fine, I don't care. Uh, Preference, whatever, I think it has very good moments sometimes, and sometimes where it's not quite sure what it is. Chiwetel Ejiofor's performance absolutely should be nominated for lead drama actor. To me, there's no question about that. And the fact that it doesn't really seem to be front and center to any conversations, it... Bothers me a tiny bit. So yeah, those, those are a few in answer to, in answer to that question, I would say. Uh, Let's go for one more question in this uh, pod of limited responses before we do two standalone question answers. Listener Doug asked about the next gigs for Josh Holloway, Carrie Russell and Jennifer Garner and wonders what our favorite cast was in a show that wasn't so great in the wake of Fox's decision to cancel pivoting. Let's concentrate on the first half. What can you update Doug on?
1: Well, Carrie Russell is doing a political thriller for Netflix called The Diplomat. From an executive producer of Homeland, Jennifer Garner has a full plate. She's doing a Reese Witherspoon Apple limited series called *The Last Thing He Told Me*, *The Party Down* update for *Stars*, and is reteaming with the *Alias* creator J.J. Abrams for the Apple drama *My Glory Was I Had Such Friends*. Meanwhile, Josh Holloway is also returning to the J.J. Abrams verse with HBO Max drama *Duster* which, like uh, J.J.'s Apple show with Jennifer Garner, is awaiting a premiere date, like most everything else from Bad Robot.
0: Excellent. That, to me, feels like a transition into our next segment. Number three. Continuing with our supersized mailbag, Hassan wrote us. On May 23rd, just two days before news came out, asking what was going on with J.J. Abrams and his big deal with WB Discovery since Bad Robot hasn't made anything for HBO Max and announced Justice League Dark two years ago, wouldn't you know it, I would say friend of the five, Leslie Goldberg, you're something more intimate than a friend of the five. <laughs> half you're,
1: of the five? I was going to say. Like you're, two and a half of the you're, five.
0: You're about 2.5 out of the five. Um, Leslie Goldberg wrote a terrific story for The Hollywood Reporter. Fill us on the deets, Leslie.
1: Well, let's just say that Warner Brothers Discovery CEO David Zaslav also agrees with you, Hassan, that nothing has come from this $250 million overall deal that JJ and Bad Robot signed with Warner Brothers back in 2019. It's important to note here that that deal was signed with John Stanky and Peter Roth at the studio Stanky with AT&T. Obviously, AT&T is no longer involved here, but... And Peter Roth has has moved on. We've got Channing Dungey now sitting atop the studio. But J.J. landed at Warner's with a very competitive situation. He left money on the table to re-up at Warner's as part of a big company-wide deal. Apple strongly pursued him. And, you know, I'm told was offered him north of $500 million for his exclusive services. He declined because he wanted to be able to have his movies get a theatrical release. So what has he been focused on? Well, he's announced several scripted projects. We broke news this week that he is doing Speed Racer for Apple as a live action series. Um, but look, for, in a larger sense, a lot of the stuff that has been announced, we haven't seen. Demimond, especially, which was announced back in tw- early 2018, that's the first show that J.J. is writing and creating since Fringe in 2008. Is now on the bubble. So Demimond on the bubble. The original JJ show they just cast their lead last month. But basically, what I'm hearing is that this is a debate over the show's budget. So before we get into Demimond, it's important to note that House of the Dragon, the Game of Thrones prequel, was completed with a budget under 200 million dollars, which is obviously that's not chump change, but it is. Rather affordable considering it is a Game of Thrones series. So what's going, how does that affect Demimond? Well, sources say Abrams and Bad Robot are looking for a budget for Demimond that is north of 200 million. Zaslav is sitting here saying, well, I've got to cut $3 billion from the company's budget as part of the, the newly merged Warner Brothers discovery. Is it, does this make sense to spend north of 200 million on one show? And that debate is likely going to sink Demimond before it can even finish casting. Again, just one actress has been cast so far as the lead. But again, this may be old, outdated by the time we come out. As I can imagine, a pre-holiday news dump for this one. But I don't think Demimond is going to move forward because that's a lot of money for one show. You know, and sources say Zaslav and Abrams have been in close contact because you know. Zaslav is now looking at every overall deal and seeing if Warner Brothers Discovery is getting the money that they need out of these deals, if it's worth it. So, you know, I, I originally heard that they were that Warner Brothers Discovery and, and Zaslav was, were willing to walk away from the bad robot deal. That is not true. Instead, what they're trying to do is look at what makes sense to does north of 200 million dollars make sense for one show? Not so much. What's going on with these DC, the Justice League dark show? Well, they've got 10 scripts for Demi Mond already in hand for Warner Brothers and have they've read, I think, eight of the 10, as I reported. They've seen the first script for Madam X and they have... I think most of the scripts for Constantine, no one has been cast in either. And what's, I think, frustrating, you know, there's, like, again, a bunch of other shows that they're doing for HBO and HBO Max. But what's frustrating for the execs there is how do you plan your, your schedules? If you're Casey Bloys, how do you plan your HBO marketing spend for 2023, 2024, when you don't know if you're going to get DemiMond or if you're going to get Constantine or Madame X or you know, seven, you know, one of these other, you know, 10 shows that he's got in the works for HBO and HBO Max. Obviously, it's the same thing. They're interchangeable at this point. But yeah, so that that's a big bone of contention. And that's got David Zaslav and J.J. Abrams taking a closer look at the deal and the way that they work together. You know, J.J., you know, he's the utter, right? So he's kind of been on a schedule of his own. You know, no one at that studio at Warner Brothers before had ever said to him, like, Well, here's your deadline, here's your budget, stick to it, we'll get this when we get this. Those days are are long gone. I think now what you're gonna see is more of JJ being reined in and bad robot being reined in and saying, You need to deliver, we need to know, we have to plan. Because if you're HBO, like you need to figure out a marketing budget, you need to know what you're gonna do. Like, okay, well. We know that we have House of the Dragon in this quarter. What do we need? Because ultimately, like, keep in mind, all of these companies have to report to their shareholders, right? They're in this to make money. So, how do you make money when you spend $250 million on Bad Robot and you get nothing out of three years? <laughs> that, that's basically the question. So, what happens next is probably Demi will be shopped um, once the official pass comes in, and again, I, that's just what I'm, you know, anticipating to happen here. That could happen, you know, as this uh, episode record at, you know, after we come out. But basically, Warner Brothers either way is still going to shop the show. So even if it doesn't go to HBO or Max, chances are good that they'll, he'll just take it to Apple, which is in the same boat, right? They've got a, a, a few JJ Abrams shows in the hopper that they've greenlit. Again, not a whole lot is coming from them. So they, who knows when these shows are going to premiere? That's also a big issue in the streaming era, where a lot of these shows get announced or renewed, and you're just like, is it going to be back next October? Right? Look at Stranger Things. It's a prime example. Right? It's a show that's far over budget. The Duffers don't take a lot of notes, and you can hear, you know, you get Critics Corner coming up or having a already read Dan's review. There's some bloat there. Like, would that have benefited from from a network exec say, that had better control of, over the duffers? Sure, I'm sure, you know, but that's also, you know, like when you get to a creator that has that much power and and doesn't want to listen to your executives, it becomes a problem. And now you're trying to see David Zaslav go up to J.J. Abrams and say, we need something here because we're not just paying you because you're, you're J.J. Abrams. We're paying you for content and we don't have content.
0: <sighs> I mean, if you look at his track record, his track record is... Definitely hit and miss. And but there's still a difference between when you're getting top of the line. I'm actually the writer, producer, director, J.J. Abrams versus, you know, hi, I'm J.J. Abrams. I like supporting the vision of other people. Here's a show that I'll put my name on. But it's not all me. Yeah,
1: Westworld, you know. But he's, again, I don't think he's involved in the day-to-day of Westworld. That's Lisa Joy and Jonah Nolan.
0: <sighs> I, wonder, I wonder, and you would have no way of answering this, and this is just me being curious, is how much, you know, demi when it was first announced, it was a couple years ago. How much money has been put into that show to get it to where it is right now? You know, you mentioned the number of scripts.
1: Yeah, writer's rooms. I think there was a mini room going. You know, I have one source. I I had heard it's at least six figures already invested in that show. And that's before you've even finished casting. Like I said, you cast one person in that so far. You haven't built sets. You haven't done anything. There's plus marketing and promotion, which is not cheap that's a big investment and you haven't even gotten to the 200 million investment.
0: Yeah, I feel I feel like six figures feels low honestly cuz presumably not just a writers room going but presumably you also have a production department that at very at the very least has been doing sketches has been, you know, doing miniatures for things whatever. You know, th- there's been pre-production work done on that show. Obviously, if the budget is over 200 million for a first season of a show. If the pre-production that's gone into the show is a million or a couple million, you can just go, okay, <laughs> fine. On to the next thing.
1: <laughs> yeah. And actually, you know, speaking of, of mailbag, we did get a second question from friend of the five, Jason, when we're of course talking about the great Jason Lynch, the TV editor over at ad week. And he asks, you know, coming out of this week's news surrounding bad robot, and Warner Brothers being unhappy with the output from that deal, which nine-figure creator has been the biggest disappointment so far? Uh, For me and my vantage point, I would say Benioff and Weiss. And I'm not trying to pick on them by any means. I found everything that they did with Game of Thrones beyond impressive. They created a groundbreaking show, an iconic show. And you can say what you will about how it ended and everything. I'm not here to talk about that, but you can't dispute... What they made and what they turned that property into is a global franchise. But when you look at their deal, they signed a 200 million dollar film and TV with, deal with Netflix in August 2019, after being wooed by Disney and John Landgraf at FX, as well as with Amazon. Amazon was the front runner for months before Netflix came in with more money. But so, what are they? What has Netflix gotten for their 200 million? Well. Ben F. and Weiss, first of all, they bailed on Star Wars. So they so they're unlike J.J. Abrams, who's focused on a new Star Trek show for rival Paramount. Benny F. and Weiss are 100% focused on their Netflix deal. So after having b- bailed on Star Wars, Weiss did a movie called Metal Lords for Netflix, but their main focus has been on one show, The Three Body Problem, which was announced in September 2020. It's awaiting a premiere date. It's already been embroiled in scandal with an attempted murder plot. It's been challenged by a group of Republican senators who alleged that the series would be normalizing China's human rights abuses by working with the original book's author. It's And, and again, it's no premiere date. So we know that Benioff and Weiss are not the Shondas or the Ryan Murphys or the Greg Berlantis in that they focus on one single show at a time. But you're also kind of, pardon my French here, you're stepping in, in shit with the title that they've selected so it's a good question to see how this is going to come out if it'll perform because again it's netflix throwing a lot of money into one show and like hbo and and warner brothers discovery with that robot does this does the end justify the means well we're going to find out because this is i think fully cast still in production again awaiting a premiere date and we'll see
0: To to me, the answer still feels like it's it's Ryan Murphy, uh, just because if you look at his Netflix output, a lot of the stuff has been has been bad. Some of it's been good. But there's been output. There's been output, but it's all been niche output. And on top of that, you have to be Netflix and you have to look at the sheer number of shows that he's produced that are bigger shows. For other people, you know, sort of the carryovers from his other deal. So every time you get a big Ryan Murphy show on FX, Netflix has to be sitting there going, yeah, Fucker, we're paying you all this money and you're making shows for Disney. Yes. That, and, they, and
1: he just announced, what, the Return of Feud and he's got two more shows, the American sports, whatever, and some, I don't know, there's two other shows in the American franchise. So. Yeah,
0: so, th- so that to me is why Ryan Murphy is the answer is because if you're Netflix, you look at every new season of American Horror Story, you look at every, I mean, obviously American Crime Story. But that was a
1: carve-out. That was a carve-out as part of the deal. They knew that that was going to happen. It's not like... When, when Netflix signed Benioff and Weiss, they, they knew that they were going to walk away from Star Wars. Everyone knew when they signed that deal that that, that was going to happen. I knew. I told, I told our, our, the rest of our staff, go back and look at your emails, Dan. I told you that, that they were going to be bailing on Star Wars.
0: I don't doubt you, Leslie. I never doubt you. This isn't about me doubting you. No, I'm, I'll, I'll, I mean, obviously, if nothing comes out for Netflix out of the Benioff and Weiss, Weiss deal, that's a pretty big waste of money. Well, wait,
1: they, they had that comedy. What was that comedy that, that, that Amanda Pete did? She was on our show for it, and I can't remember yeah, she what it was, was. It was The Chair. but that's The Chair. That, and that was a passion project. They probably slapped their names on it. Yeah, and, that, that to know. me is
0: definitely not counting as anything big, you, you know, though we'll see that's it. That's a
1: favor, I'm guessing. It
0: is, and it probably didn't cost much to make. Maybe they can find a way to milk a, an Emmy nomination for Sandra Oh out of it, but I would be skeptical. Shocked. But yeah, I, I wouldn't be shocked. I would I would still be a little surprised. Uh,
1: you're no. talking about some major, major shows that you're worried that Emmy voters will will overlook, and now we're talking about the chair. I think that's got to be a lot lower down on the, on that list. And no offense to Sandra Oh, I absolutely love Sandra Oh, and you still have the final season of Killing Eve up there.
0: It, no, so I, but I'm I'm still saying Ryan Murphy Murphy simply because of the discrepancy between the thing that Netflix has been paying him zillions of dollars to do. And then the stuff he's been doing on the other side and the difference of in the profile between those that just in terms of frustration, maybe, so maybe it's not disappointment. It's frustration with Ryan Murphy. Like, you know, yes, he's given them a fair number of shows. I don't think that is the problem. He's just given them a fair number of shows that. Came and went. Yeah, came and went. In some cases were savaged. In other cases, hey, you know, at least he got Golden Globe nominations for the politician. But But again,
1: its (laughs) I mean, the awards are a bonus and it's not like, you know, obviously, Netflix, we know Netflix is desperate to have those big trophies in their showcase in their in their uh, in their lobby. But. Ultimately, it's about getting their subscribers keeping. First of all, it's about retaining their subscribers and about getting people to spend time on their platform, And, you know, we this is all going to go back to the me ranting about the lack of transparent ratings. But those Ryan Murphy shows, they do perform, at least according to whatever, you know, gibberish Netflix ratings, you know, what that when all that crap that they put out and claim to that they purport as actual ratings or whatever. But they rank right. They rank on whatever made up bullshit that Netflix puts out. But at least they have something. You know, whereas Benny F and Weiss are like, great, we got the chair. What canceled after one season? Probably spent no money on it. To your point, and then and now we're waiting for this thing, and it's already been in the headlines for not exactly great. The the narrative going into it is not great.
0: And the chair wasn't canceled; it was announced as a limited series. But that's oh seemed... damn It was I'm a, it pretty
1: was a... sure Amanda Peet said that she had an idea for a second sure, season on it, our show.
0: Whatever. Anyway, though. Yeah, lot, there looks. That
1: finale leaves it open for a second season.
0: There absolutely could have been a second season, but it was still billed as a limited series. The limited whole time.
1: series just means that the episode count is limited. It doesn't mean that it's not going to get renewed. Yeah, sometimes
0: yes. That's sometimes, how I'm,
1: so. I'm looking at it.
0: Totally fair.
1: Anyway, I digress. All right, up next. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
0: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
1: Continuing with our mailbag theme, let's take a look at the unscripted space. Listener Mark is very eager to hear Dan's thoughts on the most recent seasons of Survivor and Top Chef. And Dan, I hear the. This- the tribal councils and Survivor were, as as Mark said, super intense.
0: I like that you look at the words tribal council and you and it's like you've never seen them before. It's nope. like you don't know how they're supposed to be pronounced. Nope. Tribal council? Tribal. <laughs> tribbles,
1: <laughs> Tribal council. I don't know. I've never seen Survivor. Not for me.
0: Ah, Survivor's great. Um so, okay, going to be talking mostly about Survivor and Top Chef here, and I'm not going to spoil the end of the Survivor season, but I've seen the end of the Survivor season. I have not seen the end of this Top Chef season, so, yeah. Um The Tribal Councils were, as Mark said, super intense, and um I, honestly, there was like a four-week-in-a-row stretch where the people who were voted out we're all very enthusiastic about having been voted out. And that's something that doesn't happen very frequently on Survivor. And that made me kind of happy because it's one of those things where you never know how bitter people are going to get about having been victimized by something that's actually just, you know, a part of the game. And that's always one of the things that irks me on Survivor. It's, but irks within the normal flow and confine of the game is, you know, people who are, who are pissed off at having been, uh, blindsided or something. But no, there were four weeks in a row where the people who were blindsided were all overjoyed at having been part of a survivor blindside. And I kind of dug that and I dug that the final tribal council, the final jury was not a bitter jury. They were a jury who asked Questions who tried to get to some of the answers regarding people's strategies and who voted based on whether they felt that the final tribal answers were justifiable as someone who deserved to win a million dollars. I, I thought there was there was some appreciation for the game of a different type this season. Now, I have to say that part of the reason why the jury wasn't exactly sure of who they were supposed to be voting for is because the strategy of the game has gotten a little messed up. There was sort of supposed to be a we're going back to the game's roots two seasons ago, 41, a season that I couldn't finish. Like, someday I'll try again because I finished every Survivor season, so I might as well. But I just stopped because there were two... There were some things that were just straight up annoying, like the decision to have Jeff... Probst doing lots of direct-to-camera addressing and over-explaining of things that Survivor fans already understood perfectly well. Anyway, that still gets on my nerves. Uh, uh, Jeff Probst is such—he is such a good host, but he has maybe done it for too long and has read too many of his clippings about how he's such a good host— And so he feels the need to imprint on things that don't need imprinting, like The Final Tribal, where he decided to tell the jury what a good jury they were and how good their questions were. It's like, come on, Jeff, we just just don't need you for that. Um, And the show really has gotten to be... A mess. I am more of a survivor purist. Give me one or two immunity idols, period. Move on. The sheer number of advantages, advantages that require se- saying secret code words. Uh sometimes it's a steal a vote, sometimes it's a it's a extra vote, sometimes it's an idol. I I used to be able to keep track of absolutely every piece of advantage that was in the game. And how it fit in with the existing alliances and all of that. And that's what I liked about Survivor. As it stands now, I lost total track during this season of who had what and what difference it made. And the alliances were all kind of free-floating because I don't know that anyone really knew. And that became a little annoying. It was a... it was a season that benefited tremendously from a, a very good cast. And if they ever decide to return to all-star seasons, I think there are lots of people who are strong contenders to be future all-stars. If they do this, I would say that Lindsay, for example, is a lock to be a, an all-star in the future, but I would say that Omer is probably a lock, that High is a lock, that Jonathan is a lock. Like there are a lot of people who from this cast who would be totally viable. Going forward as as all stars, and I don't know that I could have said that about the season before this one. I think that there was a lot of fun in watching just how physically astonishing Jonathan was in the first half of the season. I kind of liked watching Lindsay then compete with him in the second half of the season, and it. it Was better for the show to not just have one Goliath who was the only person who was being physically dominant. But I liked the different kinds of games that Marianne played, that, that Mike played. It was, it was a pretty good season. Still too many advantages and secret things and gadgets and whatever. Give me the, give me the simpler version where people are there and then they have one idol at each tribe. And then there's a merge at a prescribed point. That that tends to be the survivor I like a little bit more. I will be interested in seeing what from this two-season block they keep next season and what they don't, because it was such a big, big deal about how these two seasons were shot back-to-back back and how no one knew what to expect, because no one on 42 had seen 41. I will be curious what they choose to keep. I would hope that they keep actually very little of it. Whatever. They'll do what they do. Uh, Top Chef has been great. I think Top Chef has been less good this season than the Portland season before. The Portland season, unfortunately, has the problem where I think it was the best Top Chef season start to finish, and then we discovered afterwards that the person who won was facing many harassment and other allegations about workplace behavior, and it was entirely a thing that frankly, the Top Chef producers blew. There there was bad research that put both the audience and the show's hosts in in a bad position to have to go from being like, God, this was a great season. Everyone made great food. But yay! To being like, yeah, it was a great season, but pity about the person who won. That's so you had Padma, who is, you know, outsmoke, outspoken about everything. Having to literally go from celebrating what a great season it was and what a great winner they had to being like, oops, the next day. Why would you do that to Padma? That's, that's horrible. This season was not, I don't think, as, as good as that. Like, I think we're getting down to a, a very, very good final group of contestants. Uh, Sarah, Evelyn, Damar, and Buddha. But, but I don't know that I think that as a group of four, they're as good as the final four last season as chefs. I don't think there's been that sort of consistency, but I think they've done very good work with Texas. I think they've done very good work with themes with the possible, well, not possible with the total exception of the, uh, week that was just a commercial for Jurassic park dominion. That was, that was just horrible. Uh, (laughs) Just embarrassing. Also happened that week to be the exact same week that uh, Survivor did an Applebee's promotion. And it really made me feel as if there's nothing worse on television than, uh, than product placement on reality shows. Uh, but a lot of the people, I think, are doing very good work and a lot of the personalities are good. Of the four people, I think that very clearly Buddha has the most personality in his cooking or maybe the most whimsy and so i appreciate that i think probably of the four contestants evelyn is the one whose food i would like to eat the most she seems to be doing great work and uh Sarah is just so wonderfully sarcastic that I'm very glad that she got the chance to come back into the game. I think that her her droll personality, like if it was, it was who amongst these people I would like to hang out with, I am certain that I would have the most in common with Sarah, but I would probably want to hang out with Sarah at a restaurant where Evelyn or Buddha were cooking. So uh, I, I like me some Top Chef very much. It is, it is, one of my favorite things to do each week is get to Thursday night and have the opportunity to actually turn off my brain for 75 minutes uh because, God, that's a very necessary thing. Uh Speaking, continuing a little bit on the reality front, but of a slightly different type. I could have saved this for Critics Corner, but I'm not going to. There is a new season of Somebody Feed Phil out, which is another one of my favorite turn-your-brain-off shows. It is only five episodes, but they are five episodes that absolutely will offer you a nonfiction escape from whatever your individual personal hell happens to be. Uh, And so he goes to a lot of uh, great locations. The episode in Madrid was my favorite, but I thought a lot of the other ones were very good as well. And if you don't know the show, it's Phil Rosenthal who created uh, Everybody Loves Raymond, and he goes places and meets people and eats food. And it's all about him meeting the people and enjoying the food. It is such a positive, hopeful, aspirational show. There's been sort of the sad backdrop of the the death of Phil's father, who had been a part of the show. Every episode previously had ended with Phil Skyping with his father and his father telling him a joke. And so this season features kind of guest joke tellers, dropping in to pay tribute to Phil's father and and it is it's it's a beautiful tribute. The first episode that I watched where I saw how they were going to handle that really did make me teary and subsequent episodes continued to because it's it's just so respectful and so loving and so admiring of how Phil's father shaped Phil and how the experiences with his father shaped the ethos of the show. And so yeah, I am I am a big fan of Somebody Feed Phil and so since it's reality I'm folding it into this because there will be plenty of stuff to talk about in Critics Corner in oh, you know, 10 seconds. Number 5.
1: As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. Among this week's major new launches, Dan, it's really a streaming showdown as Netflix drops the first quote volume of its fourth and penultimate season of Stranger Things and Disney Plus launches the first two episodes of Obi-Wan Kenobi, screeners of which have not been provided to critics in advance. Dan, it's annoying and, you know, we were due to have the showrunner of the Obi-Wan show on uh on the podcast this week until we heard about uh, Lucasfilm's baffling screeners uh strategy here so not great bob but uh i don't know how you're gonna review this one because you haven't seen it
0: i guess what i'm not gonna review it and yeah that's how it goes uh yeah let's
1: just reiterate for a second here send screeners to press send screeners to press it's good for your talent it's good for your showrunners it's you know even if it's a shitty review what's the old adage dan any press is still better than no press
0: I'm not even always sure that's true, but really, if you're Disney Plus, and this is not something that's coming from Disney Plus, because Disney Plus would be happy to have screeners, uh, but you're Disney Plus and you have these relationships with a couple of the biggest, but also most spoiler averse companies on God's green earth. But on the other hand, Marvel has had screeners available for critics for every single one of their shows. You think Marvel is more paranoid, is less paranoid, rather, about screeners than Lucasfilm? They're not. Marvel is more paranoid than anybody. We've had set visits for TCA on Marvel shows where we haven't been able to tell people on Twitter where we even were. It is absurd that Disney Plus is allowing Lucasfilm to say no screeners for their show. Because similarly, Mandalorian and Boba Fett, neither one had screeners. Like, what is happening at Lucasfilm? They've never released a movie that they didn't give critics access to. Why do they think that television and television critics are are third-class citizens? Seriously, screw you, Lucasfilm. Why would you think that this was an acceptable way of, of doing business? And it will be our colleague Angie who will be reviewing this one. I am not in any way going to be prejudiced against the show as a result of this, but I can definitely be um, annoyed with Lucasfilm. <laughs> so yeah, what else? What else is coming that you want to tease before I go nuts?
1: Well, the only other thing left to tease is Pistol, the FX show that is launching on Hulu. I
0: uh, know that's not true because you're forgetting about Shorzy on Hulu, which for fans... Well- which, for fans of Letterkenny, is every bit as big a deal uh, as any of these other shows. Uh, Shorzy... Uh,
1: with apologies to the, all of our Letterkenny fans.
0: We definitely have Letterkenny fans in the audience. Uh, I, I didn't
1: mean to suggest otherwise.
0: Okay. I. So, yes. Shorzy. It premieres this Friday. It's the spinoff, spin-off from Letterkenny, based around Jared Kiso's Shorzy character, whose face was never shown on Letterkenny. But now you do see his face, and he looks a lot like... Jerry Kiso, only with a little bit more of a beard and with a fake tooth because he plays hockey. Um, I actually did not in any way think that this was a show that I wanted to watch. I, um, you know, I love Letterkenny. I don't dislike the hockey scenes, but they're not my favorite scenes. No offense to Riley and Jonesy. And even within the hockey scenes, Shorzy was never my favorite part of those. So this made no sense as being a thing that the world needed. On the other hand, obviously... Jared Kiso and the show, they love hockey, they love Canadian culture, and where hockey fits into that. And I, I liked these six episodes a good deal more than I expected to. I, I think there's a a smart approach to adapting uh, my review, which may or may not be up by now, uh, compares the best moments of the show to Meyer as sort of an example of how you take a character who's basically a one-note, one-joke character and find a way to give them actual human emotion and nuance – This is trying to do something similar. It's trying to make a character who was basically notable for telling people to fuck off and for talking about screwing people's mothers and making them into the protagonist of a series, which you would not think was all that plausible. It somewhat works, and it has a lot of the things that... Letter Kenny does well, including very, very strong female characters, including a great respect for uh, Canada's indigenous populations, obviously a love for hockey. Um, So yeah, so I I liked Shorzy more than I expected it to. I didn't love it. I loved a couple of the episodes of it, but I liked it a lot and I would actually watch more of it, which I was surprised by. And so yeah, that's ultimately the biggest show that anyone's talking about this week. Shorzy on Hulu.
1: You're full of crap, Dan. Come on. Get to the goods. Get to the goods. Fine. Pistol. God damn it, Dan.
0: Pistol is about the Sex Pistols. It is uh, created by Craig Pierce and based on Steve Jones, uh, who mostly I know from Jonesy's Jukebox on the radio. uh, But, you know, of course, he was also a founding member of the Sex Pistols uh, and directed in its entirety by Danny Boyle and I watched three episodes and I'm done with it. It is basically most of the things that annoy me about biopics, um, specifically musical biopics, and a lot of kind of hollow Danny Boyle style. And I often really like Danny Boyle style, and I didn't mind it here, but maybe what I minded was what it was in the service of, which is One painful cliche after another. There's like a a three-minute stretch in the second episode where it's like, ha, Johnny, we're going to call you Johnny Rotten because you have bad teeth. And everyone goes, ha, great nickname. And then Sid, like the hamster. But our hamster's vicious. We're going to call you Sid Vicious. Ha. Huh? I don't care if that is exactly how Johnny Rotten and Sid Vicious got their nicknames. You have to find a better way to present it as drama because otherwise it is going to be excruciating. And in these cases, it was excruciating. Uh, there is obviously some very, very good music here. There is no question about that. Um, and there is some amusing presentation of seventies period anarchy in the UK, as it were, uh, but in general, just too many cliches. And the, the musical biopic genre is is so entrenched, and it's so rare that you get a good one. And we we tend to rate them on a curve, where like a fairly average movie, like Walk the Line or Ray, where you can get a spectacular performance, but the actual storytelling is bare bones average, gets elevated to a higher degree simply because it's not as excruciatingly bad as Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, this is kind of Bohemian Rhapsody with the style of winning time, and I don't know necessarily that that I can find much reason to recommend that. Uh, some of the actors are are good. There's some fun in seeing Maisie Williams being a little bit grown up and rebellious. Uh, one of the actresses is Kyle Chandler's daughter. If you Find yourself going, huh, that very attractive actress occasionally looks like Kyle Chandler. It's her. Um, So yeah, Pistol being released at the last second ahead of the Emmys. It is not an Emmy contender. It is filler. And let's talk about Stranger Things because probably that is indeed the thing that people want to talk about. Um, I mean, the, the way my review put it is probably the the simplest and cleanest way to put it it's this is absolutely the the biggest scariest most ambitious season of stranger things yet this is also the least funny least charming least human season of stranger things yet so just kind of take that as you take it uh i find that i like going back in my mind to that first season where nobody knew who anybody was. You know, people recognized David Harbour. People said, ooh, Winona Ryder's back. But it was still a total under-the-radar show. You go back and look at running times for that season. Most of them were between 40 and 50 minutes. It was all set in Hawkins. The special effects were totally bare-bones. They were, let's not show you things so that we can scare you because we know that if we attempt to show them to you, you're going to see that our special effects budget was not very high. Well, that is no longer the case with Stranger Things. Of these seven episodes, one of them is 62 minutes Five of them are a little bit over 70 minutes, and episode seven is 98 minutes. The last two episodes, the amount of time it would take you to watch the last two episodes of this batch of Stranger Things episodes, you could watch The Godfather, and I'm not necessarily going to compare Stranger Things to The Godfather, but you shouldn't have running times that make me wonder if I want to compare your show to The Godfather. And in every single case, it feels as if either you could have trimmed things out. And there's a lot of time with 11 and will and Joyce off in their new California home. A lot of time with Jonathan, no offense to Charlie Heaton. He's looking like he's in his mid thirties at this point, And it's hard to justify what he's still doing on this show. And yet there he is. Cause whatever. Um, you could trim stuff from that constantly. You could trim stuff with uh, with Hopper off in Russia. You could either trim it or you could give it its own episode. I, I think I said in my review, it's pretty clear that there was roughly 13 hours of TV that the Duffers wrote here, and then they decided to squish it into nine episodes. And in no case do I think that these episodes benefit from being as long as they are. I don't think they flow right. I don't think they're paced right. I just don't think this was a a well-constructed season of television. And a lot of that has to do with a combination of showrunners who have gotten very, very powerful, and they've earned the right to have that power, and executives at Netflix who either chose to kowtow to their power in general or who recognized that Stranger Things is a buzzy show for a service that really has maybe suffered from a lack of buzz in recent months or a lack of consistent buzz. Probably more the latter than the former. Because, you know, last few months also includes Bridgerton and there was plenty of buzz about that, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but, yeah... It, this is this is a situation where an actual executive with a strong guiding hand surely could have either said, "Okay, let's get these episodes down to 55 minutes apiece." Trust me, not everything is gold, or could have said, "Look, I know it might take some con- uh, some rearranging of contracts, but if we have to make this into a 13-episode season, we have to do it." And I think probably the contract thing is a, a big deal because they'd never had a season this long before and whatever. But like, apparently in the next batch, there are two episodes and one is 90 something minutes and one is two and a half hours. I just don't know what you're doing in those cases. Anyway, the season is unquestionably bigger. It spends a lot of time in the upside down. The special effects budget has gone from let's not show anything because we have no money and we don't want to look bad to, Hey, let's show everything because apparently the money train is, is coming into the station. So let's go nuts. And so the special effects are, are very good and the stuff in the upside down is, is nicely done. And there's definitely more time in the upside down. And so I've complained in the past that I never felt like the mythology of the upside down was really particularly complex or interesting. They've added some layers to it, and so I appreciate that. Uh, The cast of the show is very good, but unquestionably, the younger actors have all gone through puberty, and that messes with the time frame in ways that I think probably also could have been directly responded to. For example, a title card at the beginning that says two years later probably would have meant I was less distracted by the fact that in six months, everybody... Grew two feet, which, of course, does happen when everybody goes through puberty. I mean, we all were in the seventh grade and came back after summer vacation and people were bigger. That's that's a thing that happens. Uh, So, yeah, but I found more and more frequently that the things that I'm liking about the show aren't so much. The kids anymore. And that doesn't take anything away from Millie Bobby Brown, who's very good. And from a few of the other kids, I think Sadie Sink at this point has become pretty much clearly the the best of the young actors. And so they're leaning on her ability to do drama. And so there's no one I blame. It's not like anyone has become horribly awkward and horribly unable to act. That is not a thing. But I find that I'm more amused by things involving Steve, which is one of, you know, with uh, Joe Keery got one of the great character retcons in recent TV history where he was horrible in that first season. And then they said, oh wait, he can actually be funny. Let's make him into a funny, somewhat bumbling alpha male as opposed to just the jock asshole. I think it was a great move. I think he's terrific. And he's sort of at the center of so many of the best scenes in the show. Whether it's uh, Stephen Dustin, Stephen Nancy, because I think Natalia Dyer has become really good. And at this point, my favorite part of the show is Maya Hawk. I think that Maya Hawk is so good and they're having so much fun giving her things to do and giving that character dimension. And there's a lot of that this season. So I think without any question, if you are a dedicated Stranger Things starved fan of Stranger Things, you will be happy but some of that happiness will be put to a test. It is it is just not very well formed. And I, I miss the simplicity of it. But apparently the simplicity train has left the station and will never come back. Uh, so it goes. I think a lot of people will be very happy with it. But some people will also be fatigued by it. So that's Stranger Things first seven episodes of the fourth season dropping on Friday, along with Shorzy, of course, on Hulu. And Pistol comes out early next week, and it's really fairly forgettable, unfortunately.
1: And, of course, no one has any clue about Obi-Wan.
0: So. No one has a clue. It'll it'll happen. Our colleague Angie Han will have a review probably by the time this podcast drops. And I'll probably watch it tomorrow as well. And maybe next week's podcast, I'll say a couple of words about it. Maybe.
1: Maybe. Well, that feels like a good place to wrap things up. For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews for full coverage. Thank you for listening to TV's top five, the Hollywood Reporters TV podcast.
0: I would also add that if you are in Austin, Texas, I will be doing a bunch of things at one of our favorite festivals, the ATX TV Festival in Austin. I will be on at least one panel and moderating, as of now, three additional ones, including the panel for Evil Season 3, which I'm looking forward to. Uh, so come say hi. Do not be offended if I don't wish to uh, hug you or if I don't remove my mask, but I will totally Give you a fist bump and be happy to see you underneath the mask. Uh, but yeah, so ATX TV Festival in Austin, uh, I'll be tweeting about it and whatnot, but come say hi. It is always a blast. Um, I am assuming that things will be a tiny bit strange this year because the world is strange, but uh, it's still one of the good things on the calendar.
1: Yes, have some queso for me, Dan.
0: I will have some queso and some brisket. Uh So, yes, returning to our normal send-offs, be sure to subscribe to TV's Top 5 on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little review-y thing. It does help spread the word of mouth. We're always happy to chat with you guys on Twitter. Come let us know what's working and what isn't working. We got a bunch of good mailbag questions this week, and some of them will send the mailbag Either to get answered in future weeks, or unfortunately, sometimes we'll forget. So, you know, if it's been five or six months and we haven't answered your question, feel free to email us again. And if you have new questions, email us at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5, the numeral 5 at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week,
1: Dan, and have a great Memorial Day holiday, everybody.